Mark 1, 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. And we are so thankful that you care for us. You know our greatest need is you. But also, Father, you know that our greatest obstacle to our need is ourselves. We puff ourselves up with self-pride that we can live sovereignty over our life and we, some of us live irreligious lives and we do what we want when we want it. And Father, some of us have drunk of the poison of self-righteousness where we seek to prove our worth and earn our blessings before God that he will have, have to bless us. Father, the poison of self-pride that declares independence from our creator, our source of life and truth will condemn us. And the self-righteousness that declares what we do will earn favor with God condemns us. And Father, we confess that we are guilty of trying to earn a way into the presence of God by our morality, our self-righteousness, by looking down on our nose at our neighbors and thinking we're better than them. Therefore, God will certainly bless us. And Father, we confess we are no different but Father, we thank you that you are faithful. You are a heavenly Father that does not allow us to be impetuous, Lord, self-righteous. Father, you faithfully humble us by your Spirit and the Word, and you draw us and bring us to our knees that we may cry out to you and to realize like the Publican, that we are a sinner and not, we're not worthy to lift our eyes upon, up to heaven. And Father, we realize it is at that point when we reach the end of ourselves can we truly find Christ. Father, I pray this week as we go out into the world, into our vocations, into our rest, our, the areas that we serve, our neighbors, that we would be faithful ambassadors of Christ the King at our homes, at our work, and our leisure, that we would study for your glory, that we would work for your glory, that we would play for your glory, realizing that every breath that we have in our lungs belongs to you, and it is be used for your glory, that we have been given good gifts from our Heavenly Father, and those good gifts are to be used and held with an open hand 
but to be able to be objects that focus up and glance our thoughts to heavens and say, thank you, Father, for this good gift, for it comes from a good Father. Father, we thank you for the greatest gift, which is Jesus Christ, the faithful Son of God who was tested and tried and came forth as gold. He did not compromise. He did not veer from the mission. He did not seek himself, but he submitted himself faithfully to the Father's will. May we see Christ today and be faithful disciples of him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, probably about 10 to 15 years ago now, the Sistine Chapel in Rome underwent a major renovation. And because over time, the very small chapel where they would have worship, the, uh, the way they worshiped in Rome, they would have incense. And uh, almost a thousand years of incense being burnt in a small chapel, the incense would go to the ceiling. And over time, it created a layer in a film that changed the perspective and changed how uh, Michelangelo's beautiful work on top of the Sistine Chapel looked, and it appeared to the generations that worshipped underneath it. Well, caretakers very carefully and delicately uh, got up there with very fine instruments, and they, over time, with patience, removed that barrier, that film that had built up over the years, and they said it was incredible, the colors. It went from a very dull pictures of Jesus to bright and to vivid. What had over years have been, had been shadowed and hidden now was bold and new and bright. I was texting Matt Owen from Community Bible Church uh, about um, the book of Mark, and I said, ultimately, that is what I want to do in my heart and in the hearts of Ocean Park, is to begin a restoration project to find Jesus. Because we live in a day and age living in the South. We're not exactly, uh, in North Florida, we're not exactly the Bible buckle, but uh, of the, the buckle of the Bible belt, but we're probably one of the support uh, parts that hold your belt on your pants. Everybody's a Christian. Everybody knows Jesus. Everybody's granny used to teach in Sunday school class. So there's a really strong um, history here of a political residue that has built up, a, a religious residue, a socioeconomic res residue. We all have begun to see through the filter of our uh, of our influence and our culture and our experience, uh, the a faded, dull picture of who Jesus is. And it's my prayer that we, as we go through the book of Mark, for those of you who are on the outskirts and you hear the words of Jesus and you're not real sure about it, Jesus, that by going in Mark and hearing Mark's account of Jesus, that you will understand who Jesus really is and what it means to be a true follower and disciple of Jesus. And for those of you who have been following Jesus your whole life, the veneer of folk religion and um, of, of bad teaching throughout the year that is more mixed with speculation and, 
and uh, storytelling that we would come under the authority of the Word of God and let Mark speak on Mark's account and let Jesus be seen clearly and truly that way we may be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. But I'll tell you this, for those of you, and we had just this past week celebrated 66 years as a church. Some of you are, have been here from the beginning and you've been in church and you've heard sermons and you're in Sunday school, good one, really good ones. And the last five and a half years, some not so good ones. That's my time for the record, not Brother Eddie's, my time. Uh, but we are often want to do this. We want to get into a text and we want to immediately jump over to another text and talk about that one. And we want to be able to bring something in. And what that does is that begins to put a veneer over the picture of, of Jesus that we're looking at. With Mark, we want to see Jesus on Mark's terms. We want to not allow the other Gospels to come in because Mark is giving us a specific picture of who Jesus is. Mark's emphasis is that what, who Jesus is, he is the suffering king and what it means to follow Jesus. And so we must resist the urge to jump to Matthew and jump to Luke this morning because we have a very small passage on the temptation of Jesus, just a sentence. And we want to immediately jump over to Luke and Matthew because they have long accounts and it goes into all the detail. But Mark is telling us a story and he's leading us down a journey in a perspective of Jesus. And we need to be listen to what Mark is saying that we may hear him. Because I'll tell you what Mark is saying over and over and over. What he wants us to know is in verse one, the beginning of the gospel. Some of your translations might say the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed Savior of God, the Son of God. Mark wants you to rejoice that the long-awaited Savior has come, and he wants to see, that you to see and to feel the power of the Savior and the obstacles that came up. And we even think that our Savior, by the end of the book, if you've never read it before, it feels and it looks like Jesus, our Savior, has been defeated. But there's the more to the story when you keep going. Mark is inviting his readers to put their faith in the fulfillment of God's promises that he will save us from our sin and bring salvation. And this salvation, he is in this morning establishing the credibility of who Jesus is. He wants you to know Jesus is tried and true. He is faithful and tested, and therefore you can believe in him. And he is showing you and giving you reasons why. Jesus is not a crackpot. Jesus is not a con man. Jesus is not a liar. Jesus is not a coward. Jesus is faithful and Jesus is true, therefore you can bet your lives and eternity following him. Mark wants you to know, and I want you to know this morning, our big idea. Our salvation is secure. Our salvation is secure because our Savior is faithful and true. 
Our salvation is secure because our Savior is faithful and true. And so Jesus, or Mark weaves together these, and really briefly, these three um, reasons why. is First is that Jesus identified with the lost. And that Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will. And that Jesus overcame Satan's temptation. And normally, I, I might, in my outline, might call you to do something, believe or trust or something like this. But that's in the big idea, is you can have confidence that Jesus' salvation is true. And here's three reasons why. Three proofs, three evidence as of why we can trust Jesus. So we start in verse 9, a quick, brief one, and again, we want to resist that urge to jump over to Matthew and Luke, and it says this, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. See, why do we want to jump over to Matthew and Mark? Because we crave the details. We want the backstory of why our characters think and act and do what they do. So what we read the backstories, we try to find the prequel. We want to Google to know how the trick is done. But as we read through Mark, we have to find that urge. Because if we don't, if you try to dig deep and go all the different directions and rabbit trails you want, you will miss the forest when you're looking at the trees. We become so distracted by the minutiae that we miss the magnificence. In this case, as in every gospel, is especially true in Mark Notice the context that we fit, because this is one big story, uh, this narrative that John is teaching, notice, or Mark is teaching in verse 8. It's immediately connected, I have baptized you with water, John the great forerunner who is blazing away, he says, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and, and we have made been desensitized by that, but John, uh, John is saying there is someone coming that will be able to pour out the Holy Spirit on you. And if you're reading this for the first time, that's a mighty significant claim that John is reading. And then immediately, this incredible announcement, we want the details about Jesus. We want to know, because we know it's Jesus, it's a story about Jesus. We've read the cover, so, you know. You know, you don't have to be a PhD to put those two together. But then we say, and then we, we say, okay, where does Jesus come from? What does he look like? Where was he born? What, what took place in his childhood? What has he been doing for the last, as we figured out, 30 umpteen years? What's been going on? But Mark doesn't give us any of those details. You notice we rarely ever read Mark at Christmas. Why? There's no details about his birth. There's no details about the Magi or the shepherds or Mary or Gabriel or all those details. All it says is this. Anticlimactic. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. The only detail we get about Jesus is that he was from a backwater town in the country of Israel. Uh, Israel. And Nazareth itself is not, not ever even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's a little fishing village outside the Sea of Galilee. It's like saying that you grew up in Agra, Kansas, or Thurman, West Virginia, or Van Buren, Maine. Now, my mother did grow up in Van Buren, Maine, but it's a really tiny town. And, uh, and, and it's a nowhere town, 
and onlookers that day when Jesus walked into the baptism of John would have said he was just a nobody. He looked like everybody else. He wasn't from the cosmopolitan city of Jerusalem where all these people were coming out. He was a little country coming from Nazareth and he would have said something and even other gospels say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There was an issue, their country, they're uneducated, don't take them seriously. And it all Mark gives us is the details is that Jesus comes, yet in the midst of the ordinary, the extraordinary was happening. Notice verse 9, and he, Jesus, was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, I've been asked this many times, and sometimes people, why in the world would Jesus be baptized? He didn't have any sins to, forget, to confess or repent, or did he? And we think uh, that uh, we know, and as John or Mark is very easy going to show, that Jesus did not have any sins to confess or anything to repent of. But Jesus empty, or entered the muddy waters of Jordan. Why? To join himself to a lost people who were in need of salvation. By entering the waters of the Jordan, Jesus was saying, I am identifying myself with the plight of these struggling people who are weighed down by the burden of sin. I am entering these waters to come aside an impure people, a people whose righteousness could never atone for the magnitude of their sin, a people who we see through the narrative of the Old Testament, because this is one big story of the redemption of, of, of God that he is accomplishing in the midst of people, that these people stood guilty. And you read through the prophets and you read through the kings and over and over and over again, you see the sinfulness of these people and their helplessness and their hopelessness. And Jesus, this indistinguishable man, well, we know the rest of the story. He was sort of a big deal. But to the reader of Mark, he has no idea. This guy from Nazareth comes and he enters the water. Jesus is drawing near to those who were saying, my pride has, our pride has got us here and is only by humbling ourselves under the almighty, merciful, and gracious God can we find salvation. The very thing Gil was emphasizing this morning in Sunday school. Those sin-stained waters Jesus entered to say, these are my people. Identify with these people. I come alongside with these people. I know their needs. And I know that many of these have turned to the only source of salvation, which is God himself. It's the very thing that Isaiah writes, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Isaiah 53 is the great chapter where it says, he was bruised for our or crushed for our iniquities. He was bruised for our transgressions. The weight of sin was upon him. And you see just the great suffering that the anointed one of God would endure to redeem his people from their sin. And it wraps up and it says, God would see this willing sacrifice on behalf of his people. And what would happen? He would be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. What is that? Justification. 
declared righteous, not earned righteousness. The judge sees it and says, I am declaring you by my authority as Almighty God, I am declaring you righteous, and he shall bear their iniquity. This is the beginning of the story where Jesus comes from a nowhere place and he looks like a nobody and he comes and he says, these are my people. It is my desire to redeem them from the bitterness of their exile, of, that their sin and pride has brought them to. Jesus would lead those people out of the muddy waters, back into fellowship with God. But it wasn't because of the might and the chariots that he would lead them. It was actually down the Via de la Rosa, the way of suffering, the path that Jesus, the almighty king, the anointed son of God that we said, he would take his cross and to a point he couldn't carry it anymore because he was so weak. The path to fellowship with God did not lead through uh, as the hymn writer says, flowery beds of ease and easy travels, but it led through the bitterness of the cross and he was leading his people out of the muddy waters of repentance into fellowship with God. Jesus was the suffering servant who would atone for the sin of his people and bring them into the sweetness of the fellowship of the garden because God was there with his people. The baptism of Jesus should cause us to rejoice. Jesus, as Colossians said a few weeks or months ago when we did that, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, the one who created things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, the one for whom all things were created, the one who is before all things and in him all things hold together, the one who's preeminent in all things, the one who the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The good news of Jesus Christ is that rather than clinging to his rights as the almighty God of heaven, he humbled himself in the form of an ordinary man from an ordinary place to be able to accomplish the extraordinary, to bear the burden of our plight, to drink the bitterness of God's wrath, to suffer the punishment for our rebellion. When Jesus walked into those waters, he was boldly declaring that these people belong to him. And that should cause us to rejoice. That should elicit a few amens, I think, I know we're, we're a little stodgy at times, but a few amens wouldn't hurt me out. I've worked hard on this. And our God is good. and He's worthy of our praise. It's the very promise of Psalm. The Lord is near to what? To the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Not for the people that have been haughty and, and puffed up, but it's the people who realize their helplessness and they have fallen down and said, there is nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And Psalm 34 ends out, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That doesn't mean that the law is just forgotten and God and sin is not punished because None of us like when somebody who is knowingly guilty gets off scot-free and makes a travesty of justice. God will not allow the guilty to not to, to go off scot-free because what he did in Christ 
as he poured and he punished sin in Christ. And those who take refuge in our Savior, who has identified himself with us, are able to find salvation. Because remember this, Jesus was on no, on no obligation to save us. He did not have to come. He did not have to identify himself with the lost and the enable in that water. There is nothing that draws Christ to us. It's 100% the mercy and grace of God. It's everything in him and nothing in us. When Christ entered the waters of baptism, he was identifying with sinners who were lost and blind and wretched. But that's what makes grace so amazing. Ocean Park, you can trust the salvation of Christ because we have a Savior who did not cling to his rightful glory, but one who humbled himself and came to us in our need and our affliction and our hopelessness and our helplessness to bring us salvation and fellowship with God. Therefore, we can have confidence that our salvation is secure because our, faithful, our Savior is faithful and true. Not only did he come to us and identified with the lost, but he submitted to the Father's will, to the plan of redemption. As we continue reading in uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 10, And when he came up out of the waters, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." The heavens being torn open. See, generations of God's people experienced the miraculous intervention of God when they cried out to Him in the midst of their hopeless struggle. We remember the Israelites on the edge of the Red Sea, and you have one side where the Pharaoh's army are coming, the greatest superpower at that time in the world, and they are just a ragtag bunch of escaped slaves, and they're standing on the edge of the Red Sea, and they cry out to God, save us! And what happens? Moses lifts up his hands and it says the waters parted, the waters opened, and they walked through on dry ground in safety. Another place we see on the Jordan and the cusp of the promised land, Joshua is leading the people into the promised land and the Jordan River is in, in the way and they cry out to God, Lord, make a way. And Joshua instructs the priest to go into the waters and the waters part and open and they are able to walk across. Even Elijah, when he was later in the prophets, he was walking through and he asked God and he hit the river and the waters parted and he walked through. They parted in front of them. Now we see in this new exodus that Jesus is leading us out of the wilderness of sin into fellowship with God, that he is doing something that no one has ever done before. Because every time heaven opened and God intervened into the plan of, plan of men, it says that it, it uses the word that it would close again. But notice what it says now. He saw heaven being torn open like lightning that tears through fabric and it cannot be pieced back together. Jesus has opened up a new and living way. God himself has left the 
comforts of glory and He has come down into the midst of His people to be with them and His power is seen and demonstrated through that. And we're going to see quickly in Mark chapter 1 the power of God strikes fear in the heart of these people when He delivers deep people from demon possession, where He heals sickness, where He even controls the wind and the waves, and expert fishermen who were scared in the midst of the storm are now terrified because they realize the power of God is sitting in their boat and they want nothing but to get out of the boat because they know that they can't handle the power of God. It's the very prayer of Isaiah in Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Oh, that you would tear the heavens. Isaiah is calling out from the midst of oppression and lack and need and weakness. And he's praying, God, do something. Tear the heavens open and come down to us that the mountains might quake at your presence. Brothers and sisters, Mark Chapter 1, verse 10, is a fulfillment of Isaiah 64 because God has come down. He has ripped open, a new, uh, open the heavens and He has come down and His creation quakes in His presence. As disciples of Jesus, if you're worshiping Jesus for who He is, you should quake in His presence. Just like Lucy not my mom, Lucy in the books of Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, trembled in the presence of Aslan. And Peter asked the, the, Mr. Beaver, he said, is Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver laughed. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. Brothers and sisters, the heavens have been torn open. And, and it's significant here. This is where Mark blows you away, where sometimes we miss the forest and the trees. What happens? First thing that happens when Jesus appears in the book of Mark, the heavens are ripped open and Jesus is there. What's the last thing that happens, or the first thing that happens after Jesus dies? The curtain is torn from top to bottom. The keep out sign from the presence of God is torn in a new and living way is brought in because Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled, his prayer, the heavens have been rended, have been torn like a fabric cutting through, like lightning cutting through fabric, and Jesus has made a new and living way, and he has drawn near to his people. Not only did Jesus see the heavens being torn, but the Spirit descended on him like a dove. This harkens back to this, the work of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth, and what happened? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, over the chaos, over the, this unmade world, and God worked and made creation. Now that same Spirit that brought life to the world it is hovers, comes from heaven and descends like a dove. Not actually a dove, but descends like a dove unto Jesus. And it says this new work of creation is signifying 
Jesus has brought a new creation, a new way. He is the new Adam. He is the better Adam. And we're going to see in Mark and in the wilderness and time and time again, unlike Adam, unlike Abraham, unlike Noah, unlike time and time again, the patriarchs and the prophets, they failed and they had feet of clay. Uh, feet of clay. Jesus is the new man who is faithful and we can trust him. We can trust him because the spirit is symbolizing Christ's supremacy in new creation, a new creation that is infused with the power of God, that is released from the power of sin. And eventually the presence of sin will also be eliminated. That's coming in, in this new creation that is infused with new spiritual life and this new creation that is in the fellowship with God. It's the Father who declares that Jesus is the new anointed representative of the new creation. He has been filled and equipped by the Holy Spirit of God to bring life into salvation from his people, for his people. Not only is the heavens torn and the Spirit descended, but then it continues, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Up to this moment, the voice of God has been silent for 400 years. Think of the last prophet in Malachi. 400 years have come, and the heavens have been silent. And the voice of God has been generation after generation. They have not heard the voice of God until that day when an unknown, unidentified man walks from Nazareth into the waters of baptism. He identifies with a, a lost people. He sees heavens open up, and then the voice says, You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. You see, the voice, and as Mark writes, is hearkening back to two of the promises in the Old Testament. The first one, as Virgil read to us, is Psalm chapter 2. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is a great messianic promise that the messianic king would be enthroned over the kingdom of God. Jesus is not the, just the son of God. That's a big deal. But Jesus is the promised son of David who would sit on the eternal throne of David. He's the rightful heir of the throne and he will rule over God's people. Then it continues, the latter half of this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 42. Behold my servant, whom I, my servant who I uphold, my chosen, my anointed, my, you can say, Messiah, my Christ, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 42 promises a faithful and merciful servant who will bring salvation to Israel and serve as a light to the nations. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the one who brings light, the God's presence and drives away darkness of sin and night. He is the one who brings hope. And now alongside the waters of the Jordan River, we see the Trinitarian revealing of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit enacting their plan of redemption to save a people who are stumbling in darkness to fulfill the promise of Isaiah, the people who walked in great darkness. Darkness. Now they have seen a great light. 
But the rest of the story we know and we'll read through Mark. Jesus is the king. He is sitting on the throne of David. But his kingdom is different. His reign is different. His throne is different. See, Jesus, like David, was anointed outside the city. But eventually, David would be, um, um, I want to say coronated, but that's not a word. Um, made the king. There's a fancy word that I'm not getting right now, so you can make fun of me later. Um, but D Jesus will be crowned king at his coronation when he's lifted up on the cross, when he dies. See, the Gentiles, the Roman Empire, will mock him. Hail, king of the Jews, and they'll spit on him. People don't ki treat kings like that. But the king who is coming will be a suffering king who would die for his people because his, no, his people are lost and only the atonement of the Lamb of God can take away their sins. And when Jesus is raised up on the cross, he will be uh, crowned king. And it's the Jews who missed their Savior, who did not recognize their king. They mock at him. And they realize they search the scriptures for their God and their promise, but they miss Jesus. And all of this, this is not the story of a king that we expect. This is not like Arthur. This is not like other kings that we know and we're familiar with. This is a king who in the face of anguish and pain and rejected, rejection never once wavered from the plan of the Father that had been declared before the foundations of the earth to be able to redeem a people back to himself that they may have fellowship with God. Jesus didn't waver. He submitted himself to a plan and he said, not my will, but yours be done. If Jesus, Ocean Park, is able to submit himself and walk the path of pain and suffering and self-sacrifice for the people he loves, he calls his disciples to do the same to be at war with the, the forces of this earth, but to lay aside not only the, the, our pride and our rightful that we have as the children of God, but to serve and to love one another. When the path of obedience is winding and we don't understand where it's going and we don't like where it's going, we can be assured this, our Savior has walked the path he knows where he's going, and he has promised that he will lead us through that path that leads to salvation and to fellowship with God. There is no obstacle, there is no opposition in your heart or outside of you that Jesus does not know and has not overcome. There is no trial and there is no testing that Jesus has forsaken you and left you. It is he, our king, who guides you and leads you and strengthens you and equips you for. And when people say, why do you believe in Jesus? Aren't you wasting your time? What is it getting you? You're not getting better. You're not getting healthier, wealthier, more prosperous. You have to remember your salvation, Jesus is leading you into fellowship with God, and that is the greatest treasure. That there's nothing in this world that glitters or shines that can replace fellowship with God, the source of all true joy and delight. 
And therefore, we can have confidence knowing our salvation is secure because our Savior is faithful and true at Galilee, at Calvary, and today. And finally, in verses 12 through 13, Jesus overcame Satan's temptation. The Spirit immediately drove him out of the, into the wilderness. He, he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals and the angels were ministering to, to him. I remember when Andrew was a little boy and he played um, Pop Warner. He was much smaller than me. I could still throw him around. Now I have to say, Andrew, stop. You're hurting me. And, but he would play Pop Warner football and they would have to do 10 hours of conditioning before they got their pads and their helmets. And they would do all kinds of things like running around and drills and sprints and scrimmages and all those things, almost like flag football kind of thing. But they had to do 10 hours. And I can remember at the beginning of every season, I would look at them, oh, that, that kid, he's big, he's strong, he's fast. And I would notice these things. I'm like, man, that, that kid's going to be lights out. But then something changed. The pads went on and the pads went on you started to hit each other and it got a lot of hot and it got very difficult and sometimes the biggest fastest strongest kids were big babies and they were scared to tackle and they just sat on the sideline because they were they didn't do it and the little guys at the time andrew who are it's not the size of the dog in the fight it's the size of the fight in the dog andrew would be able to whip them because he was tough and he would hit and I came up and I realized that it's, it's a whole new ball game when the pads go on. You learn what type of football player a kid is when the pads go on. Often, our Christian life is the same. When life is good and the, uh, the, the, the waves are smooth and like the ocean is like glass and the, and the weather is fine, we have lofty ideals and theological truths and moral standards that we hold to. Uh, and when testing arrives and when the pads go on and the opposition is staring you on the other side and all they want to do is kick your butt, it's a whole new ball game. Testing reveals character and it proves worth and strength and de determination. When the other kids were trying to avoid pain and difficulty and discomfort and disappointment, it's the kids who loved to be there and wanted to play. Their true grit came out. And Jesus was no exception. The anointed Messiah would be tested to demonstrate the caliber of God's chosen Redeemer. See, he was all nice and happy when he was with the, in the Jordans and, and John was preaching and the crowd was getting whipped up and Jesus sees this. And then what does immediately happen after his baptism? It says he immediately, and Mark is really good at this, 42 times immediately, bam, 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 bam. He's moving us towards the cross. He's moving us towards the cross. And his, he wants to get there and he doesn't linger. So Jesus is coming out of the, the river. It's nice. Everything is well. And it says the Spirit casts him into the wilderness or, or, or drives him into the wilderness. And it's actually the Greek word that's the same that you'll see in the rest of the book. Jesus casting the spirits, out, uh, evil spirits out of the people. Jesus is being forced and pushed into the testing to prove his worth. Now remember, this is a new wilderness, a new exodus that Jesus is leading his people from the wilderness of sin into the fellowship with God. And, and 
just as Israel failed in the wilderness, and they grumbled and they complained, and they failed miserably. The new Israel, the new creation in Jesus Christ was driven into the wilderness, but this time he was faithful. He did not compromise. He did not give in to his passions, but it says Mark very quickly goes out and he says that ultimately Satan, the lead archdemon, the master henchman, was defeated by Jesus being he never deviated from the Father's plan. He never used his power, his glory, his influence for his own personal gain, but he submitted himself to the plan of the Father. The Spirit of God has anointed Jesus to stand face to face with the ultimate villain, the ultimate one who has taken God's very good world and twisted it and perverted it and caused pain and hardship in our societies, our environment, our families, our homes, and our bodies. Sin has racked and wreaked havoc on our creation, but there is one that stands untainted and undefeated, and his name is Jesus, and he's leading us a new exodus out of the wilderness of sin and sorrow and pain into the fellowship with the Father. And Jesus never failed. We're going to see that. And Jesus is, and, and ultimately now the big battle is over, but the death blow is coming at the cross. The demons, why do you think the demons knew who Jesus was? Because he had defeated their henchman, Satan. You are the Son of God, the very thing Mark wants us to know and to trust. The demons knew he, who he was, and they feared him, and they said, get away from our presence because we can't stand up to you. During those 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus overcame the temptations of Beelzebub and delivered a crushing uh, blow on the very one who had caused so much pain and havoc within the creation but a new day was coming in the wilderness, a day of victory, a day of hope, for the Son of Righteousness had risen with healing in his wings, and his name is Jesus. But ultimately, that victory would not be over until Jesus went to the cross, because he identified with the lost, the repentant. He submitted to the plan of the Father, and he overcame the temptation to deviate from that plan. He, our Savior, is tested and proven to be faithful and true, and we can trust him. He knows what he's doing. He knows where we're going, and he's leading us into those places. In a few moments, we'll sing the song, I will glory in my Redeemer. The words say this, I will glory in my Redeemer whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. We can confidently sing these words, that the righteousness of Jesus is not a, a, a scam, it's not a, a fool's gold. It is the genuine article. It is real. It is substantial. He is the rock. He has been tested and tried. He is faithful and he is true. And we can say, 
when we stand before Almighty God, not on our righteousness and the basis of what we have done in our own religion or our irreligion, but in the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I belong to Jesus. His righteousness is my righteousness. And Mark is showing us that that salvation that we have in Christ is secure because our Savior is faithful and true.